Belief and science are totally different things. People are seeing something. The question is, why are they seeing it? Is it more of a cultural influence? Is it uh, the need for a big hairy monster in our, in our minds? We don't know, yet the phenomenon has persisted since prior to written record. The exact reason for this in, in various cultures is as yet largely unstudied and undetermined. I think we're dealing with a living creature, an unknown primate of some kind. We um, interviewed probably a thousand people, and out of that, uh, we obtained 125 uh, very credible sighting reports. Some people say that the Sasquatch to them is just a mythological creature. Nothing to do, it's not a real creature of flesh and blood. If the creature is a mythological creature, it have, the mythology has to come from someplace. It doesn't just pop out of a Kellogg cornflakes box. You can trace this information back as far as there are records and all over the world. And yet, as far as I know, there isn't a dime or an hour of, of official scientific time spent to study this. Just nobody will touch it. My work with the Sasquatch has uh, been something of a problem in the academic world. Uh, I'm quite sure I have uh, had a lot of difficulty getting promotions and pay raises because of this. And the way I like to uh, describe it is um, my university supports my Sasquatch research. They don't fire me. It was the spring of 89. My grandson and I had just come from skiing at Hemlock Valley, and we saw this creature come up over the side of a hill and came across the road. I believe we saw what we saw, and what other people think is up to them. Well, Bigfoot drives a Cadillac with a deer hunter on the hood. He wears a 10-gallon cowboy hat when he's driving out through the woods. Got his Ray-Bans on and his hair slicked back like a 57 Chevy fan. He's got a silver tooth in his big old mouth. You can see it whenever he grins. Bigfoot is. Bigfoot is. Bigfoot is. And he might be here tonight. We thought it could have been a human being, but when it looked at us, we could see the muscles in its face and its eyes. It wasn't a big Sasquatch. It was just around six feet. Well, when he came across the road, he wasn't in a hurry. He took big steps, and he probably got across the road in probably about six or eight steps. And then when he went up the side of the bank, he stopped for a few moments and looked at us, and, and then later when he turned to go up the mountainside, he was moving. So that's when we knew for sure it wasn't a human being, because he was moving right along. It turned half, half its body this way and looks directly down the road at me, and turned back started across the highway in big strides. The basic question is, does this creature exist or doesn't it? If it doesn't exist, then no, none of these people have seen the real thing. But if it does exist, then it's just an animal that's out there, and the 
assumption is that the great majority that think they saw it did see it. along the line said that the universe is not only stranger than you think, it's stranger than you can think. Well, there's a statement I use, if you're green you grow, if you're ripe you rot, so I like to stay green until I'm not here anymore. Just keep learning, because that's what it's all about. And welcome to the show, everybody. You're listening to Bigfoot in the Citizen Scientist podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and I want to thank you for being here. If you have an encounter or story you would like to share with me, shoot me an email at sciencemeetsbigfoot at gmail.com on the podcast social media websites or give the voicemail line a call at 641-715-3900. That's 641-715-3900. Make sure you punch in the extension 448-449 to reach my page. And make sure to leave your contact information so I know who to get in contact with. Either way works, just send in those accounts. As you may well know by now, this podcast is just a side hobby, and while I aim for set episode release projection dates, I'm not always able to meet those. I realize I may lose a lot of my listeners, but I do this for fun. I don't make any money doing it, and though I have a passion for podcasting, sometimes life just simply gets in the way. So I want to take the time out to thank all my regular listeners. I see you, and I want to thank you for your continued support. I've been obtaining tools and equipment in preparation for this coming summer as I have finally made a plan for what I want to do with this podcast, so be sure to keep your eyes and ears peeled this coming summer for new and exciting content. Okay, on to the show. Today I have compiled some information on the grandfathers of Sasquatch, if you will, or better known as the Four Horsemen of Sasquatchery. These public figures in the Sasquatch community were and are key players to the information gathered and the scientific techniques implemented in the field today. To Grover Krantz's first recognition of the mid-tarsal break, though did not have the proper terminology to use yet, 
all the way to Peter Burns in the ideology of nuclear DNA testing of the famous and highly controversial Yeti Hand. So buckle up and get ready for a ride alongside of the Four Horsemen. Grover Krantz. Dr. Grover Sanders Krantz was born in Salt Lake City, Utah on November 5, 1931. He was raised in Rockford, Illinois until the age of 10 when his family relocated back to Utah. He attended the University of Utah for a year beginning in 1949 before joining the Air National Guard where he served as a desert survival instructor at Clovis, New Mexico from 1951 to 1952. Krantz then transferred to the University of California, Berkeley, where he completed a Bachelor of Science degree in 1955 and a Master's degree in 1958. With the submission of his doctoral dissertation, titled The Origins of Man, Krantz obtained his doctorate in anthropology from the University of Minnesota in 1971. In the 1970s, Krantz studied the fossil remains of Ramipithecus, an extinct genus of primates then thought by many anthropologists to be ancestral to humans, although Krantz helped prove this notion false. Krantz's research on Homo erectus was extensive, including studies of phenomic speech and theoretical hunting patterns, and argued that this led to many of the anatomical differences between Homo erectus and modern humans. He also wrote an influential paper on the emergence of humans in prehistoric Europe and the development of Indo-European languages and was the first researcher to explain the function of the mastoid process. His professional work was diverse, including research on the development of Paleolithic stone tools, Neanderthal taxonomy and culture, the Quaternary extinction event, sea level exchanges, and the evidence of sex in the human fossil record. In 1996, Krantz was drawn into the Kennewickman controversy arguing both in academia and in court that direct lineage to the extant human population could not be demonstrated. In an interview appearing in the New Yorker, Grant stated his view that, quote, the skeleton cannot be racially or culturally associated with any existing American Indian group, end quote. And also, quote, the Native Reparation Act has no more applicability to this skeleton than it would if any early Chinese expedition had left one of its members there. In 2001, he attempted to submit the last paper he wrote before his death, titled Neanderthal Continuity, in view of some overlooked data, although it was rejected by the peer-reviewed journal Current Anthropology, with then-editor Benjamin Orlov stating that it did not make enough reference to the most current research. Grant's specialty as an anthropologist included all aspects of human evolution, but he was best known outside of academia as the first serious researcher to devote his professional energies to the scientific study of Bigfoot, beginning in 1963. Because his cryptozoology research was ignored by mainstream scientists, despite his academic credentials, in a bid to find an audience, Grant's published numerous books aimed at casual readers and also frequently appeared in television documentaries, including Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, In Search Of, and Sasquatch, Legend Meets Science. 
creates a studies of Bigfoot, which he called Sasquatch, an anglicization of the Halcomelm word Sasquets, or Sasquets, meaning wild men, lead him to believe that this was an actual creature. He theorized that sightings were due to small pockets of surviving Gigantopithecines, with the progenitor, or originating species, lineage population, having migrated across the Bering Land Bridge, which was later used by humans to enter North America. In January 1985, Cranch tried to formally name Bigfoot by presenting a paper at the meeting of the International Society of Cryptozoology held in Sussex, England, assigning it the binomial nomenclature, binomial nomenclature being a formal system of naming species of living things by giving each a name composed of two parts, both of which use Latin or sometimes other languages grammatical forms, such as Gigantopithecus blackie. This was not permitted by the International Commission on Zoological Nomenclature because Gigantopithecus blackie was an existing taxon and because the creature was lacking a holotype. Krantz argued that his plaster casts were suitable holotypes, later suggesting Glycerial canadensis, or perennial bunchgrass, as a name. Krantz then tried to have his paper, titled A Species Named from Footprints, published in an academic journal, although it was rejected by reviewers. After seeing footage stills of the Patterson-Gimlin film, Krantz was skeptical, believing the film to be an elaborate hoax saying, quote, It looked to me like someone wearing a gorilla suit. I gave Sasquatch only a 10% chance of being real. End quote. After years of skepticism, Krantz finally became convinced of Bigfoot's existence after analyzing the Cripplefoot placer casts gathered at Bosberg, Washington in December 1969. Krantz later studied the Patterson-Gimlin film in full, and after taking notice of the creature's peculiar gait and purported anatomical features, such as flexing leg muscles, he changed his mind and became an advocate of its authenticity. While in Bosberg, he also met John Wilson Green, and the two remained friends until Krantz's death. Dr. Grover Sanders Krantz died on February 14, 2002, and is survived of his wife Diane Horton, one stepson, and can be found with his skeletal remains mounted up along with his Irish wolfhound in skeletal form, jumping up to embrace Grover at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History within an exhibit entitled Written in Bone, Forensic Files of the 17th Century Chesapeake. Searching for Bigfoot. For 40 years. And in that time, how many sightings would you guess you've had? You mean in person? Yeah. None. Yet you seem so sure of his existence. There are too many clues and too much evidence to be ignored. Like the Patterson film. It clearly shows a creature too large to be human. And if you ever came face to face with the beast, Renee, how would you catch it? If you studied the film like I have, yeah. you will see that the creature moves like a human. Right. I would estimate that it has a top speed of 15 kilometers per hour, oh. and at that speed, I would be able to run it down. You must be in good shape. Of course, I train, I exercise, I am prepared. Good. It's been said Sasquatch prefers coconut. Yes, I heard that. Have you ever thought of using coconut as a lure to catch the elusive beast? No, not really. I always dismiss that as a myth. Glacier Fresh Tasting Kokanee. It's the beer out here. Kokanee Connection. 
What do you think I am? Crazy or something? <laughs> René de Hinden. René de Hinden was born on August 23, 1930, in Switzerland, and moved to Canada in 1953. He initially worked at a dairy farm in Alberta prior to becoming involved in the avid pursuit of Sasquatch. He interviewed countless eyewitnesses and conducted numerous field investigations throughout the Pacific Northwest. De Hinden frequently collaborated with fellow Bigfoot researcher John Green, whom he first met in 1956. Rene was a staunch advocate of the controversial 1967 Patterson-Gimlin film and eventually managed to acquire 51% ownership of the rights to this famous short movie. In 1973, De co-wrote the book Sasquatch with Don Hunter. The David Suchet French-Canadian Bigfoot Hunter character in Harry and the Henderson's film was loosely based on Rene. He was well known for his unbridled gusto, cranky, outspoken disposition, and warm, impish sense of humor. Rene was featured in the documentaries Bigfoot, Manor Beast, The Force Beyond, and the delightfully quirky Sasquatch Odyssey, The Hunt for Bigfoot. Rene DeHinden died at age 70 from cancer on April 18, 2001. He once said, I have my doubts all the time about what I'm doing. I've always had them. It's a lonely place to be, on one side of the fence, with the rest of the world on the other side but it's where I have to stay. You have people speculating that 20%, 40%, 60% of the stories are hoax or mistakes or mass hypnosis or, you know, hysteria. It doesn't work that way. Either there is an animal or there isn't. If there isn't an animal, then 100% of the stories are wrong. If there is an animal, then there's no reason to question that the vast majority of them are just the same category as people who say they saw a bear. They did see one. So you've got a great deal of information, even though there's very little information in most sightings. They just saw something run across the road is the common one. But, but, but nevertheless, out of these thousands of reports, a great deal of information about what these things do. And, of course, about their, their physical characteristics. What's their typical and reaction the, with people then? Hmm? Um, well, let me finish okay. what we're dealing with. All of this indicates an, a creature whose adaptions are totally physical. It's solitary, it's enormous, it's tremendously strong, it has a full coat of hair, it swims very well and even underwater, it can run faster than almost any other animal and run down deer, it has never had any pressure to 
to survive on its mental abilities. It lives very much the life of a bear. This is the exact opposite of the story of the evolution of humans. The fact that both species have ended up walking upright is the only reason why we relate them to humans more than we do other creatures. John Green. Known as Mr. Sasquatch, John Green was a pioneer and a leading researcher in Bigfoot investigation. He collected a database of more than 3,000 sightings and track reports. Green began investigating Bigfoot in 1957 and studied the Bluff Creek tracks in 1958. He was the first to investigate the Osman Bigfoot abduction of 1924 and studied the 1941 Sasquatch encounter at Ruby Creek. John Willison Green was born on February 12, 1927, in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. In 1947, Green graduated from University of British Columbia and received his master's degree in journalism from Columbia University at the age of 20. While in the Navy, he met the love of his life, June, and they married in 1948. They lived in Toronto, Vancouver, and Victoria before moving to the Agassi Harrison, British Columbia area, where they raised their five children. It was then that he purchased the local newspaper company, becoming the owner and editor of the Agassi Harrison Advance. In 1963, he was elected mayor of the village of Harrison Hot Springs and was responsible for the construction of the Harrison Lakefront Beach, where he spearheaded the World Championship Sand Sculpture Competition for many years. In 1972, John sold the local paper to pursue his Sasquatch research and interest in writing publications. He loved history and this passion drove him to be a champion of the Kilby Historic Site by founding the Kilby Historical Society in 1973. Later, the Fraser Heritage Society was formed where he continued to donate not only his time, but funds to go towards the maintenance of the site. In total, he was a board member for over 40 years. He was honored in 2000 as BC Senior of the Year for his volunteerism in many community groups, including the Chamber of Commerce, Senior Citizens Housing, Harrison Hot Springs Fire Department, Boy Scouts, Search and Rescue, and the Lions Club. His authoritative journalistic work influenced many early Sasquatch researchers and remains the most important investigative work in the field. Green wrote, Sasquatch, The Apes Among Us, which is recognized as the definitive book on the subject in Green's work chronicling Sasquatch investigations over the years, is a mandatory reference collection for any serious Sasquatch researcher's library. John died May 28, 2016, in Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada, at the age of 89, predeceased by his beloved wife June, brother Lewis, and one grandson. He is survived by children Marion, Margaret, Jim, Catherine, Raymond, and 13 grandchildren and 12 great-grandchildren. Though gone some time now, his legacy will always live on, and the foresight he has brought to the subject will never be forgotten. He truly was one of the many main staples in this subject.
Peter Byrne, a big game hunter turned naturalist, looks for Bigfoot with little more than a camera. He says his research project is a benign operation. I think it's very wrong to say shoot one to prove that it's there. And uh, we're very much against that. Byrne runs what he calls the Bigfoot Research Project out of a house in Parkdale, Oregon, on the road to Mount Hood. We're fairly uh, satisfied that the, the things are there. And uh, basically what we're doing, um, in a nutshell, is, is um, gathering all of the information and putting it into a computer against a prepared database and looking for patterns. And then when we find these patterns, uh, we will apply uh, technical equipment in, in various forms. The five-year project got funding from a Massachusetts-based scientific group. The present project is a year old. We started in August of last year. Yeah, I've been in and out since 1960, which is 33 years, um, not on a full-time basis. I did 10 years in the 70s, from 1970 to 1979, and that was full-time. Um, but since then, I've been in and out of it. Um, giving it what time I can um, in the search. In the 50s, Byrne joined organized searches for Yeti, or the Abominable Snowman, in Asia's Himalaya Mountains. The sponsors of those expeditions asked Byrne if he would help find a similar creature in the United States. And I have to admit I laughed at the time. I thought it was very amusing that something like this, like an Abominable Snowman, could exist in the United States. So I came over in 1960 and spent a year and um, got bitten by the bug, if you like. Burns searched without success. After a year, he left the country, but returned shortly thereafter to make Oregon the headquarters for his Bigfoot search. Well, tell me about this bug. What is it that, uh, that fuels the fire that, that leads to all these projects? I think it's the challenge of, of, in this particular um, respect of, of the unknown. Um, and um, the possibility that um, if these things are truly there, that we're looking at... Um, something that's, uh, shall we say, uh, almost still living in, in the primordial world. Um, we think these things are, are, are human in form, hominid form. We don't think they're animals. Bigfoot researcher Peter Byrne was born in Ireland. Following service in the Royal Air Force during World War II, Byrne went to northern India to work on a tea plantation. Peter discovered his first Yeti footprint in Nepal in 1948. In 1953, he started his own safari company, which he ran for 18 years. In 1957, Byrne embarked on a three-year expedition to hunt and track down the Yeti, which was funded by Texas oilman Tom Slick. In 1960, Peter headed another expedition to uncover Bigfoot in the Pacific Northwest of Northern California. Other members of the team briefly included fellow Sasquatch researchers John Green and Renee DeHinden, both of whom would later deride Byrne as a fraud. This expedition was also funded by Tom Slick. In 1968, Byrne co-founded the International Wildlife Conservation Society Incorporated and serves as the executive director to this very day. In the 1990s, Peter devised the Bigfoot Research Project, which was a full-scale scientific investigation centered on proving the existence of Sasquatch. The Mount Hood, Oregon-based operation was ahead of its time in its use of helicopters, state-of-the-art infrared sensors, and a 1-800-Bigfoot phone number. Byrne was interviewed in the documentaries The Force Beyond and the delightfully quirky Sasquatch Odyssey The Hunt for Bigfoot. 
He is also the author of the book, The Search for Bigfoot, Monster, Myth, or Man. Now retired, Peter Byrne lives in Los Angeles, California. Controversial, colorful, and passionately dedicated to the Bigfoot and Yeti search, Peter Byrne was and currently still is a pioneer with a robust presence and keen investigative skill, attracting critics and supporters alike. In the 1950s, his colleagues advocated killing a Bigfoot to prove his existence, but Byrne opposed that. Peter Byrne advocated electronic surveillance to locate the hominid and taking photos and tissue samples for proof. His goal was to find a Bigfoot and establish communication. In 1957, Tom Slick, a Texas oil man, arrived in Nepal ready to spare no expense to fund a reconnaissance expedition to hunt for the cryptozoological animal known as the Abominable Snowman in Nepal. The quest failed, but Slick, injured while on the hunt, commissioned two guides, brothers Peter and Brian Byrne, to continue his search. Later that year, Peter Byrne discovered that the monks of the Pangbok Monastery in the Nepalese Valley claimed to hold a yeti skull top in hand. On Slick's orders, and after much debate by the monks, Byrne negotiated to obtain a single finger from the hand, in exchange for a relatively significant fee towards the temple's upkeep and a replacement human finger. Quote, we made a donation of 10,000 rupees to the temple, only about $160 in today's rate of exchange, but a large amount for a community where the average income might be as little as $15 in one year. And the llamas then gave me a go-ahead to take one finger and replace it with another from the human hand I had brought back from London, wrote Byrne in a letter to Alsop. Byrne was not the first Westerner to see the supposed Yeti remains. As early as 1953, a group of Indian mountaineers and an Austrian and British scientist viewed and measured the Yeti scalp, although none of them mentioned the hand. The relics, it seemed, provided a source of income for the centuries-old temple since they were viewed as sacred relics by local worshippers and because the monks would allow visitors to photograph the bones for a fee. Byrne smuggled the finger and some skin from the hand across the Nepalese border into India, where he made a rendezvous in Calcutta with American movie star Jimmy Stewart and his wife Gloria. The famous couple agreed to smuggle the finger into the United Kingdom for research by Slick's friend and primatologist Osmond Hill of the Zoological Society of London, which they did by hiding it within Gloria Stewart's undergarments and her luggage. Byrne wrote in his letter, Then, three days later, the hotel's concierge called from reception to say that there was a British customs officer in the hotel lobby asking to see them. And could he send him up? They said yes, of course, and a few minutes later, a young British customs official appeared at the door of their suite, Gloria's lingerie case in hand. They gave the man a cup of tea, had a pleasant chat, and signed a receipt for the case, which, Gloria noticed, was locked and had not been opened. Ushering the young man out the door, she pointed this out to him and asked why it had not been opened and examined by customs. Oh, madam, said the young man, certainly not. A British customs official would never open a lady's lingerie case. Several years later, the publisher of World Book Encyclopedia commissioned an expedition into the Himalayas led by the famed Everest conqueror Edmund Hillary. Hillary proposed a hunt to discover if the Yeti was myth or monster. The expedition set out in the late 1960s, and while it failed to find evidence of the Yeti, 
Hillary methodically debunked the supposed Yeti bones he found in Nepal, including the bones of Pangbot, which now included a human finger crudely wired into place, courtesy of Byrne in 1958. Wrote the expedition commanders, the Pangbok Monastery also boasts a, quote, Yeti hand, which more than one expert examining photographs in a flake of skin has declared to be human or part human. The hand is skeletal. Heavy, markedly squared phalanges are wired together in the palm partly covered with brown, leathery skin. It is possible that some of the bones are not human, but almost certainly the best part of the hand is. It is a large but slender human hand, a woman's perhaps, but more possibly a young llama's. Back in London, Hill examined the finger and declared it of human origin. Although a number of other scientists in Slick's circle weren't convinced, and Hill himself later expressed doubt. Skin taken by Byrne also did not prove definitive, and testing of the skin decades later by the U.S. television show Unexplained Mysteries also found no clear answer as to the skin's origin. The hand at the monastery vanished in 1991 after the story of the Yeti relic aired. Meanwhile, Peter Byrne began a hunt for another mysterious creature, the Sasquatch. The bone analyzed by Hill disappeared until resurfacing in the collection of the Hunterian Museum of the Royal College of Surgeons, which notes it was obtained in 1976 as part of a bequest from Hill. In 2011, from the making of the BBC documentary, the finger was analyzed by the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland at the request of journalist Matthew Hill, and its DNA proved human. We had several fragments that we put into one big sequence, and then we matched that against the database, and we found human DNA, Rob Ogden of the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland told the BBC. We had to stitch it together, so it wasn't too surprising, but it was obviously slightly disappointing that we hadn't discovered something brand new. The Hunterian Museum stated at that time that no formal request from the monks to return the finger had yet arrived. It's often thought that the mitochondrial DNA is not visible in Sasquatch DNA and with a leading theory of having part human DNA and part other, is it possible that these DNA tests in fact show uncharted Sasquatch, or in this case, Yeti DNA? Hopefully, one day soon, we'll have the answers. But until then, no one knows. And that's all I have for you today. I hope you learned as much as I did making this episode. It gave me plenty of ideas for segues into brand new episodes for in the future, so keep your eyes and ears open for those. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode, and if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to hit the like, subscribe, and share button on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. More attention to the show helps create more and better content for you, the listener, so be sure to share this podcast around. Also, if you would like to email me with any encounters or stories that you've had, uh, shoot me an email at sciencemeetsbigfoot at gmail.com on any of the Bigfoot and the Citizen Scientist podcast social media pages or at the voicemail line at 641-715-3900. That's 641-715-3900. Make sure to punch in extension 448-449. 
Remember to leave your contact information also so I know who I'm contacting back. Okay, so before I let you go, remember, love yourself, love others, be kind, be safe, and until next time. sure of his existence. There are too many clues and too much evidence to be ignored. Like the Patterson film. It clearly shows a creature too large to be human.
And if you ever came face to face with the beast, Renee, how would you catch it? If you studied the film like I have, yeah. you will see that the creature moves like a human. Right. I would estimate that it has a top speed of 15 kilometers per hour. Oh. And at that speed, I would be able to run it down. You must be in good shape. Of course, I train, I exercise, I am prepared. Good. It's been said Sasquatch prefers coconut. Yes, I heard that. Have you ever thought of using coconut as a lure to catch the elusive beast? No, not really. I always dismiss that as a myth. Glacier Fresh Tasting Kokanee. It's the beer out here. Kokanee Connection. What do you think I am? Crazy or something? <laughs> there. I think we've caught a glimpse of the elusive Sasquatch who roams the glacier meadows of the Kootenays. He's said to be half human, half beast. This is phenomenal. Are you rolling? Okay, he seems to be headed for that cave. Let's move our cameras in a little closer. Careful, he's very shy. Yo, honey, I'm home. Did you bring the cool, crisp kokanee? Yo, my little mugwump. Kokanee beer from the Columbia Brewing Company. Brewed right in the Kootenays. Anyone spot your sass? Just this guy with the camera. Hi. Care for a kokanee? Oh, that'd be nice. No. Today, we're in the home of one of BC's best-known personalities, uh, Mr. Sasquatch. Oh, call me Sas. Okay, Sask. A lot of people want to know about your loves, your hates. Well, Bob, is it Bob? Yeah, it's Bob. Yeah. I shy away from taxidermists and uh, furriers, but I do like Kokanee. Oh, that's because you live up here near the Kokanee Glacier, I guess. No, I actually have a small condo in Vancouver, but I do keep plenty of cool, crisp Kokanee around. Uh-huh. Yeah. Kokanee beer from the Columbia Brewing Company, brewed right in the Kootenays. In Vancouver? Aren't you afraid of being recognized? That's why I grew the beard. All over your body. We're here atop the Coconut Glacier in search of the elusive Sasquatch. There, I see. Wait, you're not the Sasquatch. No, he's my second cousin. Twice removed. The abominable snowman? Well, what are you doing here? Oh, I come up to the Kootenays every summer. See, cousin Sass. Yeah, that's right. You know, we catch a few rays, scare a few hikers. <laughs> <laughs> Have a cool, crisp, glacier-fresh coconut. Yeah. Can't get him in the Himalayas, you know. Uh, uh that's mine oh, right there. Coconut uh, beer from the Columbia Brewing Company. Brewed right in the Kootenays. Uh, you mind getting a picture of us together? Uh, you know, for the mugwump. <laughs> There's a full moon in the Kootenays tonight. Our chance to observe the nocturnal activities of the Sasquatch. I think I hear him now. Wow, nice threads. What's the occasion? Oh, hi, Bob. Oh, a mating season. Moonlight music. Cool, Chris Kokanee. Get the picture. Hey, do I ever... Do you mind if we watch, or is that okay? Yeah, oh, no, Bob. Nobody watches the master at work. Uh, check out Mr. Squirrel. Mr. Squirrel. Great. Kokanee beer from the Columbia Brewing Company. Brewed right in the Kootenays. I'm ready. Oh, my little mugwump. Oh, hey, no cameras. We're here on Okanagan Lake, where there have been reports of a mysterious... Hey, what are you two doing here? Oh, hi, Bob. Just finished a little fishing. <laughs> About to hook into a cool, crisp kokanee. <laughs> wow, nice catch. Say, Sass. Yes, Robert. Did you ever run into that lake monster? You know, the guy, Ogo Pogo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Come on, Bob. Take it from an expert. Ogo Pogo is a fake, a myth. Uh -huh. Well, long way on. Kokanee beer from the Columbia Brewing Company. Brewed right in the Kootenays. Uh, brew uh, seems to be quite an undertow, eh? <laughs> Glacier Fresh Tasting Kokanee. It's the beer out here. Who do you think drew these things, man? You guys? Me. <laughs> <laughs> ah! Ah! 
You know, last time I was up here, I'd just come down off the glacier about to crack a coconut when I hear what I think is a small animal. Next, I'm thinking, big animal. So I grab the nearest thing and throw it at whatever's out there. Next day, I follow these huge footprints up to a cave where I hear this sound. Yeah, right. What kind of bonehead's gonna believe the story? Glacier fresh tasting coconut. It's the beer out here. Well, I'm all camped out. Yeah, me too. It was going to be the perfect Kootenai wedding. When suddenly... A big guy in a mohair suit came crashing through. I think it was a fur coat. Yeah, I got it all on tape. You seem to be eyeing my kokanee. I don't think it was even invited. It scared me out of my wits. I would have protected you, hon. wonder what he was looking for. Glacier fresh tasting kokanee. It's the beer out here. I think he ran off with one of the bridesmaids. Looks like Gloria.